put the Bible on paper as well, so I'll steal the extra stand. So it's still winter, so I hope you've come prepared for a warm-up question and in general just to be interactive this morning because um, I've got some questions for you. But the uh, first one is, what are the building blocks of a mature and loving church community? Or to put it another way, what are some of the essential behaviours and attitudes that we need as individuals and as a group to have a strong church community. So I'm looking for feedback. Arthur, what's, what's something we need as a church to stay strong in Christ? Can be one word. Yep. Family, family love maybe. Brent, what else do we need as a church? Unity. Unity. Any other ideas? We'll leave the curveball. Forgiveness. Patience. Prayer. There's some good ideas there. Now the follow-up question to that is, how many of these great building blocks have we seen so far in the church at Corinth in our first several chapters? Not many. So in the first few chapters you're seeing division, you're seeing quarrelling, you're seeing disunity. Moving to chapter 4, you're seeing pride and arrogance in knowledge. Chapter 5, we see um, some pretty severe sexual immorality, one individual in particular, but the whole church condoned that. Chapter 6, they're taking each other to court, they're cheating each other, they're stealing, they're fighting, they're lying. Chapter 7, the whole church had a culture of sexual immorality, it was a crisis of sexual immorality. And we're coming to chapter 8 today. Uh, We'll find that Chapters 8 through 10 um, deal with some other issues. Chapter 11, uh, there's disorder, chaos in their church services. Uh, Male-female relationships are chaotic as well. Chapters 12, 13, 14, they're, they're not using their spiritual gifts to serve each other, they're using them to serve their own needs. And so we get the greatest chapter on love in chapter 13 but it's coming out of a context of a church that doesn't know the basics about love. So... Before, though, we look down the nose at Corinth and we say, those Corinthians, they really struggled. We've got to realise that, and I think if we look at the problems in the Corinthian church, they boil down to two key areas. We could call it worldliness. Paul says they're still stuck in baby stage, as Josh put it. Worldliness. They've allowed that surrounding culture of Las Vegas, of ancient Greece, um, Corinth, to infiltrate their church and actually shape the way they um, relate to each other. So worldliness is one of their key issues. Selfishness would be another. Loving themselves more than others, putting themselves first before others and allowing their relationships to be dictated by selfishness. So we could sort of say, oh, Corinth, such a bad church. But I think for us in Australia today, We've essentially just rebranded that culture. We're probably more culturally aligned in Australia to Corinth than we've ever been. We've just called our cultural evils different names. Instead of selfishness, we call it individualism. We call it career ambition. Capitalism, maybe self-actualisation. Instead of worldliness, we call it consumerism, materialism. 
wealth creation. So you can see we've got a very Corinth-like culture. So before we just sort of say, look at the book of Corinthians and say, gee, these guys lost the plot, I think the real wake-up call for us and all of us is to recognise that the surrounding cultural pressure, the surrounding evils in our culture aren't too dissimilar. And so we should have our eyes open, our ears open. What is the Holy Spirit trying to put his finger on in my life, in your life, so that we can respond to the evil culture we face today as well? So I want to, uh, you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Keep Romans chapter 14 in the back of your mind. It's just such a strong parallel passage to what we're talking about this morning that I couldn't help but ask uh, Terry to throw it in. We're going to read from chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians today and in general we'll be looking at chapters 8, 9 and 10. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, reading from verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are many so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, lowercase g, lowercase l, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do eat and no better if we do. Sorry, if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin... I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So let's briefly unpack what was happening in the church here at Corinth. There was up to 26 different pagan temples in Corinth. They were heavily influenced, it was a Greek city, heavily influenced by um, Greek mythology, so your Zeus, your Aphrodite, your Apollo and some of the big temples were around those um, pagan gods but they had a plethora of other uh, temples um, for various religions. We, we learnt earlier that um, Corinth was a, a big trade hub for both sea and land trade so you had merchants coming in from all over the place and so bringing their religion with them. And the majority of the meat that was available in the, in the city was slaughtered in these pagan temples um, by the priests and as part of that process it was offered to um, idols or waved in front of idols etc. And so the priests that were serving in those pagan temples would um, eat of the meat, similar to the Old Testament uh, Jewish system, but obviously lots of meat, so the priests couldn't eat it all, and what they couldn't eat would then go to private feasts, 
modern equivalent of a barbecue or an engagement party held at the temple, um, or it would be sold at the common meat markets, often for a discount because of the oversupply. So this is, this is the issue with the church and the Corinthian church was very multicultural. There was both Jewish people, the, um, Claudius, the Roman emperor, had recently kicked Jews out of Rome so there was probably a few um, people coming to Corinth from that um, kick out. They were also uh, just there in general, a lot of Greeks, a Greek city, Romans and then a lot of other people. So a, multi, a melting pot of multi, multi, multiculturalism, similar to Melbourne, uh, but for a Jew, you can imagine, you think, put yourself in a Jew Old Testament uh, mentality. This meat was of unknown origins, killed in unknown ways, handled by unknown people, and, and associated with idols. So for a Jew, very unclean meat, uh, meat that you want wouldn't want to touch with a 10 foot pole. For a Gentile, they've been saved, they've come away from the temple prostitutes of Corinth, they've come away from the drunken idol feasts of Corinth and so the last thing they want to do is partake in idol feasts anymore and so they want to steer clear of this meat too. For them it's too strong an association with what they've left behind. And you can imagine as a result there's a lot of tension around this issue. So for us, meat sacrifice to idols, big deal, it's not an issue in our church today but in fact in the ancient world it was an issue across you could call it the global church. So um, there'd been a council in Jerusalem leading up to this, uh, but across many churches it was an issue. So, how is Paul going to address this hot potato issue uh, in a way that brings holiness and harmony? How can he address those underlying issues? So, we're going to address that as we look through chapters 8, 9, and 10. But first, I've got some more questions for you. I'm looking for a one word answer. And I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. So if your answer is path, that's still one word and I'm, I'm okay with that. But work with me where you can and you'll see why I'm asking them. So, Emma, is it sinful to get drunk? Yes. yes? Brent, is it sinful to drink alcohol? No. Judy, is it sinful to sleep around before you get married? Is it, Arthur, is it sinful to watch entertainment that depicts sexual immorality? Yes. Is it sinful to have a disco ball and a smoke machine in our Sunday morning worship service? Andrew? No. Sorry? I, I, you're not getting one? It's not sinful? <laughs> David, is it sinful to go to church? No. Is it sinful to overeat? No? Yes? <laughs> Chris, is it sinful to read your Bible and memorise verses? No. See, it's interesting, you've, um, the, even on those topics I've answered, some people would have actually different answers to those questions. The basic issues underlying all those questions were issues that the Corinthian church faced Okay, so they didn't have a smoke machine, but chaos in their service was a big issue. They needed to figure out how to bring discipline and order to their services. And similar to the other ones, they were all issues they faced. They had a theatre in town, they would have had to choose which place to go to, which place to avoid. So when you answered, what is our answer based on? I'd suggest that it's based on knowledge, 
what you know about that issue, what you know the Bible says, uh, what you know our culture's like, so you have to be careful in certain issues, etc. But it's also based on conscience. It's based on your personal response to what you believe God wants for you. And so meat offered to idols wasn't a black and white issue. There were different people taking different stances and that was okay because sometimes the Bible's black and white. Uh, Is it okay to get drunk? Majority of the time the Bible's very clear that that is sinful. If you were doing it to pull a spear out of your leg, maybe a different story. But the key issue is that on all these issues, it's more than just a yes, no. Um, Some of them, clear cut, black and white, the Bible says No, that's sinful behaviour, avoid it. But there's lots of areas in the Christian life where we have what we call grey areas. This is not because God is not absolute or doesn't have an absolute standard, but it's because there's a range of possible responses from our conscience to respond to what God's word tells us. So in all issues, there's biblical principle, there is God's commands, which we um, seek to be wise, seek to be understanding and seek to bring those together in how we live but in lots of areas there's grey areas. We could call them non-essentials in the Christian faith where we don't divide ourselves over. We could call them disputable matters like Romans 14 verse 1 but other examples might be the clothes, makeup, or jewellery we wear or don't wear, the food we eat or don't eat, the types of drinks we drink or don't drink, the way we run our church services and express ourselves in praise and worship, hands up, hands down, hands in pockets, dancing, standing still, eyes closed, eyes open, the things we do for recreation and leisure, the ways we spend our money, the size of our house, the speed of our car, the way we structure our relationships within marriage, the way we parent our kids, the way we conduct dating. All these things, there's no handbook that you'll find that can spell out every little detail of what you need to do. So there's a range of responses that we need to um, accommodate. And so before we get stuck into the text this morning, I want to look at three different responses. When you come across a grey area in the Christian faith, there's, I think, three possible responses you can take. Maybe this is oversimplifying. The first one, and it's a negative response, is the attitude or culture of legalistic, legalism. You see this culture in Rome, I think, based on chapter 14. This is how they're responding to grey areas. Legalism judges or looks down on others. In terms of knowledge, it's proud in the knowledge it has. As someone who's legalistic will think they've got all the facts. Maybe they've got a monopoly on truth. They know the answer and everyone else should toe the line and follow their opinion, follow their view and where they don't, uh, they judge others. In terms of conscience, the person who is legalistic generally has a guilt-prone conscience. Because they're dragging a little bit of the law, more of the law than um, Christ um, brought at the cross, they'll tend to struggle to meet their own standard and so they'll be guilt-prone. In terms of their freedom, they're not experiencing the full freedom of Christ. Essentially they're cracking a whip over themselves that the Old Testament saints couldn't bear either. So that's one response, legalistic. A second negative response is liberal or permissive. I think this is the culture we see in Corinth and I think by and large it's the culture that is now dominant in mainstream Australian churches. 
even though in the past that wasn't the case. So in a liberal response to a grey area, people are over-permissive. They don't hold people to account for their sin. This response tends to overlook important knowledge. So, yeah, God says that, but it doesn't apply to me. It's not relevant to me. Um, I don't need to live like that because I'm free. So the end result, end result in terms of your conscience and your freedom is that your conscience will be wounded. There's only, only so many times the spirit can tell you something and show you truth and if you continue to ignore it, your conscience will be seared or wounded and will be less effective at telling you how to keep out of trouble. Now this response likes to trumpet Christian freedom, liberal response. We're free as Christians but as a follow-up to that it uses it as a cover for sin, uses it as an excuse for sin. So both those responses, legalistic, um, telling others what to do, liberalism, not holding others to account, um, they're both not the culture that God would like in the church and I believe he calls us to a culture of grace. A culture of grace sees us live in obedience to our own conscience. What God has told us to do, we keep. It sees us loving others and being aware of their conscience, so not just making decisions on the basis of our conscience, but knowing what others think, knowing what it will take to love them and forfeiting our rights if needed to uh, make sure they're loved. A culture of grace um, holds each other accountable. We apply our knowledge lovingly and humbly. We can have a lot of knowledge, not a problem, but we use it humbly and lovingly. We're not defensive when people ask us challenging questions about why we're, we're living the way we are. We hold each other to account. If Arthur says, Rob... Why are you doing that? I'm not going on the back foot. I'm saying, I'm glad you asked me. Uh, here's, what I, here's what I've thought about it. What do you think about it? And we go from there. And we use our freedom in Christ not to sin but to serve and love others. So I think this is the message that Paul teaches throughout his letters um, in terms of grey areas. And as we jump into Corinthians, we'll see... I think that that is the case. So the first issue, let's just work through some of the considerations. When you, when you come to a grey area in your life, what are some of the things you should be thinking about in terms of um, journeying through to figure out how you're going to make a decision? Let's look at chapter 8 of Corinthians. And the first point I've got is that we should strengthen your conscience with biblical truth and humility. So let's read verses 4 to 6. Chapter 8. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are many so called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So, Paul here, and this is an example, the grey area is meat offered to idols. Paul's first starting point is guys, we need to acknowledge the truth about this issue. We need to know what God's counsel, God's advice, God's commands are in this area. So he says, look, an idol it's just a lump of stone. It's just a block of wood that someone chopped down and overlaid with a a thin sheet of expensive metal. Um, If you kick over an idol, it's not going to know about it. It's just a a dumb piece of wood or a dumb piece of stone. Uh, And if you wave a piece of meat in front of the idol, 
Your wife that's struggling to have kids is not going to all of a sudden be able to have kids. Your crop that's not growing well is all of a sudden not just going to spring up. Idols have no power, have no influence. That's one key truth underlying this issue of meat sacrifice to idols, this grey area for the Corinthian church. If we jump over to chapter 10 though, and we're looking at verses 19 to 22, Paul adds some additional knowledge here that we need to throw in the mix when we're considering this issue of conscience. From chapter 10 verse 19, Paul says, Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And here Paul's rebuking some of the Corinthians that thought, yeah, we're free as Christians, we know that idols are nothing, so I'm going to go to a pagan worship ceremony and I'm going to participate because, no, I know not idols are nothing. Paul says, no, actually, underlying all false religion, underlying all pagan worship is demonic activity. Underlying the Islamic State and their movement in northern Iraq is a worship of the devil. Underlying Hinduism, Buddhism and all false religion is demonic activity. Yes, the statue is just a piece of wood or a piece of stone but there are only two kingdoms in this world. There is the kingdom of light ruled by God and Jesus as God and the kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan and the angels that serve him. And so there's no middle ground. And so Paul says, when you respond to the issue of idols in your Corinthian community, know that behind pagan worship is actually demonic activity. It's not just fully neutral, so be careful about what you participate in. But coming back to chapter 8 and verse 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Here Paul reminds them that if Jesus wants to abolish all living things and all created spiritual beings, he can do so with a click of his fingers, one word from his mouth or a thought in his mind. Jesus is the supreme ruler over all created things. So Paul says, don't worry about these idols that have no power, they're subservient to the will, the mighty will, the sovereign will of God and he holds all things in his power. We live by his will and by his command. He holds our, the atoms in our body together so don't worry about idols. But not everyone has that knowledge. So the first, the first consideration we thought about when we come to a grey area is inform your knowledge and your conscience with biblical truth. Do it with humility. Some of these Corinthians had the knowledge but they didn't have the humility to say how can I consider others. So the second point that Paul has for us, the second consideration of of how to respond to grey areas is that we should consider other people's consciences as well and act out of love. So let's read in chapter 8 verses 9 to 13. Be careful however that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened 
to eat what is sacrificed to idols. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So, picture yourself, you're in Corinth, you're someone who has the truth about idols, you know the state of play with idols, that they're just uh, dumb objects whipped together by someone trying to turn a dollar out of the um, worship industry, let's call it, in Corinth, uh, and that they can't influence you. So you say, okay, there's, there's an engagement party at the temple this afternoon, I've been invited, so I'll head along. I know all this meat's been sacrificed to idols, but hey, I know the truth about idols, so I'm just going to confidently eat that meat. What about the Jewish believer who comes to the engagement party as well with all their uh, foibles about the, the cleanliness and the purity of that meat and the holiness of eating it? What about the Corinthian young believer, just a fresh Christian, who's just got himself out of temple prostitution and uh, pagan worship? He's at the engagement party as well. He's like, surely you're not going to eat that meat. Oh, you did. Okay, well, I, don't, I thought that was sinful, but I'm going to eat it now too. So... You've got people going against their own conscience because they see you with your strong conscience going ahead and eating that meat. So you might have satisfied your own conscience, you might have not been sinful uh, in in your response to your own conscience and your own knowledge, but by disregarding your brother or sister in Christ, you've sinned against Christ himself. So that's it. Paul says whether the issues meat offered to idols, whether the, whether the issues alcohol, if we revisit some of our earlier questions, is it sinful to um, have a smoke machine and disco ball at church? Is it sinful? Well, yes, it can be. Because what are the consciences, what are the, the people in our congregation think about that? Is it sinful to drink alcohol? Well, no, there's no clear biblical teaching that touching a drop of alcohol is sinful. Um, Drunkenness, sure, the Bible's clear on that, but drinking alcohol, there's open interpretation. But if I drink alcohol, and uh, I used to go to the pubs and so on when I was back at um, college, the reason I didn't drink alcohol was primarily because there was brothers and sisters in Christ with me, some of whom I knew to be weak and immature, and I didn't want them to stumble. I was there to, to seek to reach out to the lost and to also um, keep my brothers and sisters in Christ accountable to their decisions but I didn't want by my behaviour, even though I know the truth about alcohol, to lead one of them to stumble in that way. So Paul says you should consider um, grey areas by first strengthening your conscience uh, with biblical truth, getting a good understanding of the issues at play, but you should also consider other people's conscience and act out of love. And so we saw that in Romans in particular, strongly on that topic. And Paul spends the entire um, chapter 9 basically unpacking all his rights as an apostle and a free um, Christian with all the liberties he has in Christ and then says why he has given up all those rights. And so he does that to point out that another key consideration when we come to grey areas is that we should seek to save the lost. So let's read chapter 9 verses 19 to 23. 
And Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Now there's some sort of circular logic in there and it's a bit hard to follow but I think this passage is a bit misunderstood. Sometimes it's used to, um, for example, going back to the alcohol analogy because it's something that's uh, one of our cultural hot potatoes potentially. Uh, Some people would use this passage to say, well, I'm going to the pub and I'm going to get smashed because I want to relate to everyone at the pub and I don't want to judge them and so I'm going to just be one of them. And in so doing, hopefully I can be reach out for Christ. But that's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul says, I don't put aside the black and white of God's law or God's moral law on my life. I never put aside my own conscience and what God has shown me. I, I follow my conscience and I'm obedient to it. I follow the black and white of God's moral law and I'm obedient to it. But everything else that falls outside that, I will freely sacrifice if it means I get this much closer to seeing a lost soul saved for Jesus. So, and that's what he says when he says, uh, you know, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. So would, would Paul have worried about pork when he was with the Gentiles? Probably not. Would he have worried about wearing clothes of two kinds of fabric? Probably not. Um, but was he worried about uh, moral uh, law issues and his conscience to Christ? Yes, he always kept it. Not, not as a perfect human being, but that was his principle. So the principle here is that um, we want to seek to save the lost and what can we give up? What's non-essential for us that we can forfeit in order to more meaningfully reach out to someone else? So for me, at college, that was going to a pub. Not an environment I'm comfortable with, but I had my best conversations at the pub. I saw a couple of party animals come to Christ and um, for me that was giving up my comfort, giving up my rights to do something I felt comfortable with in my conscience, going and doing. Um, I didn't feel I was being disobedient to Christ and in so doing that I I had uh, a huge number of um, fruitful conversations. But so Paul, and if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, um, you'll see an exhaustive list of some of the things that Paul went through for the lost. Um, You know, lashed five times with the 39 lashes, beaten with rods three times, floating around in the ocean, shipwrecked for a few days. This man gave up every basic human right and need in order to preach to the preach to the lost that they need Jesus, they need to be saved. So our third principle when we come to a grey area is how can I respond to this grey area in such a way that I can reach those who don't know Jesus, reach the unsaved, reach the lost without compromising my conscience, without compromising what I know to be true of God's moral law but anything else compromising 
and being prepared to forfeit my own needs, my own comforts, my own rights so that I can reach out more effectively. So a personal question for all of you is how often do you think about unsaved people? How often do you get down on your knees to pray for their souls? How often do the needs of the lost affect your decision making? Affect the way you spend the money, the way you parent, the way you respond to alcohol, the way you respond to any other grey area in the Christian life. If you're like Paul, um, you will weep every night and day for the lost and for them to be found, for them to be saved by Jesus. And I think so many squabbles and debates within our churches today demonstrate that we've become completely disconnected from the heart of God when it comes to his great mission to reconcile the world through Jesus back to himself. We fight over flowers, we fight over... Dave, have you seen a few, a few silly squabbles in your days? One or two? They demonstrate that we've lost our heart for the lost So the third principle, with grey areas, we seek to save the lost. Finally, and we get this from chapter 10, verse 31, we should act for the glory of God when it comes to grey areas. And let's read together from chapter 10, verse 31. Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And Paul says, lastly and most importantly, we should bring glory to God by our behaviour, by what we do and what we choose not to do. We should let that be an underpinning pillar of all our decision making. So people are watching, generally, how we interact together as a church, how we deal with our differences and our diversity, whether we're understanding of people of different ages, backgrounds, wealth, intelligence, social status, relational status, maturity in Christ, knowledge of the Bible. We're a very diverse community and how we interact together demonstrates the love of Christ tangibly. John chapter 17, Jesus says, I want you to be one just as I and the Father are one. You can't get more one than that. And a lot of these squabbles prevent that um, prayer of Jesus in John 17 from, from being reached and I know that passage has been quoted in recent weeks. So we want people to know what Jesus is like by watching how we are together as a community here at Montmorency, um, outside, when we interact and relate to others We want people to see the love of Christ. We want people to see forgiveness, humility, grace, all those things we said earlier in order that lost people might come to see Christ for themselves, might turn from their sin and embrace freedom and grace and forgiveness and peace with God through Christ. So just recapping, there's plenty of grey areas in the Christian life. We can go towards legalism, trying to enforce our views on other people. We can go to liberalism which makes excuses for sin and is sin tolerant or we can by God's grace 
live out his grace towards other people around us. We can hold each other accountable. We can challenge each other's behaviour. We can love and serve each other with the freedom we have uh, and use our knowledge to build one another up, not to be puffed up. And why should we take a grace-based response to grey areas? Well, we want God to be glorified. We want weak Christians to become strong Christians. We want immature Christians to become mature Christians, just like Jesus Christ. And we want lost people to be drawn to Jesus, to see him properly, not be veiled by our broken relationships and to be saved from their sins so that they too can know the peace of God in their heart and forgiveness of their sin. Let me pray for us. Dearest Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this timeless uh, truth from the book of Corinthians. The Corinthian church really struggled to get it together. Looking from the outside, they were a bit of a mockery. They didn't present Christ well to the watching world. And when it came to the heavily um, sinful culture, the Las Vegas of their day, the city of Corinth imposing its uh, culture upon them, they didn't do well to resist it, Lord. And Father, we're in uh, an evil culture too, a culture that doesn't follow Jesus but is selfish, is worldly, is materialistic, individualistic, a culture that doesn't love people well, doesn't look out for other people. So God, help us to fight against the cultural evil of our day, just like Paul called the Corinthians to fight against the evils of their day. We realise that selfishness and worldliness are still issues that we come head to head with all the time, Father. So give us your grace, we pray. Empower us by your spirit to live in a way that honours God, honours you, Father. There's so many grey areas that we face in our lives. There is no clear-cut black and white answer from the pages of the Bible as to how we should live. But there are incredibly clear principles. Your moral law is clearly given to us, Lord, as how, how we should live. I pray that you'd help all of us apply this knowledge meaningfully and helpfully in, in, to these grey areas in our lives and in a way that loves others too, Lord. Not just our own little conscience in a bubble, but seeing other people, their needs, how we can love them, how we can better serve them, how we can help them mature in Christ so that we can respond to these grey areas with, a, with an attitude of grace. Father, help us to avoid legalism. Help us to avoid sin tolerance and liberalism. Help us to hold ourselves and each other to be obedient to our consciences and accountable to your word, Father. Help us have a culture of accountability but not of judgmentalism or permissiveness and sin tolerance. Help us to be a community that reflects Christ and his purity, his holiness to those around us. Lord, we need your your help in all these things and we ask for it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.